Thank you for tuning in to More To Be Said. Today's podcast has uh, some sensitive content to it. So if you have little ones around, you might want to pause this and listen to it later. We truly hope that you are blessed by this interview. You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, everybody, and welcome to uh, More To Be Said. This is our new podcast we're launching, and our hope here is just to talk further about the subjects that are relevant to your life, your world, and what you're going through today. So today I have with me Beth Sadati and Sam Eaton, and both of them have a story to share with you specifically on the topic of suicide. So before we jump into that topic, we just want to let both of them introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about who they are and what they're doing in the world today. So Beth, why don't you go first, and you can share your story with us. Thank you, Matt. So my name is Beth Sadati. And I'm not sure what I'm doing in the world today, um, but I teach high school English. I um, I taught for eight years in the public schools in Ohio and in Chicago until my first um, child was born uh, when I was 30, and then I chose to come home to um, to be a stay-at-home mom, raise my kids. I continue teaching um, in homeschool co-ops, homeschool private classes for composition classes for homeschool students. And now, after 23 years of that, and now if you do the math, I'm giving away my age, which is not good, but um, I'm finally getting ready to go back um, to full-time teaching. So I will be teaching, I start uh, a week from yesterday, and I will be teaching on the west side of Greenville, South Carolina, a Title I school, um, Charter High School, that I'm really excited about. It's, um, it was established 11 years ago, specifically to reach underserved um, urban students. So it's mostly, um, mostly minorities. Um, most of them will be the first in their family to ever go to college. There's a huge emphasis on physical fitness, nutrition, mental health, and education, the whole deal. And I'm really, really excited about it and really a little bit uh, scared. Well, that's actually how we met. So roughly, let's call it 30 years ago, I was a transfer to a high school in Talmadge, Ohio, and you were the teacher there. And that's how we developed this relationship. So I'm not sure how you and Sam met. Perhaps Sam can introduce himself and tell us how the two of you met as well. Yes, my name is Sam Eaton. I am 32. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been teaching in the public schools for 11 years. Music, I've taught every age, K through 12. I teach middle school right now. Um, five years ago, I started a suicide prevention organization in the school district where I teach. We lost three students, a teacher and a principal, all in a short amount of time. Um, and we would get these emails and I would just sit at my desk and I would just sob because I hadn't really told anyone publicly about my struggles. And I just kind of, it was this push that I needed to do something. I didn't know what it would be. It's been a slow process of building up and and doing the things that I do now, speaking. um, I wrote a book, a number of things um, to just try to help awareness and help get people talking about things they don't know how to talk about. Yeah. And I I met Beth through that. So Beth also has a story around suicide. Um, Our paths crossed through some articles I'd written and uh, we've been friends ever since. That's very cool. So your book that you released, I believe it was in late December 20th or so of last year is called Recklessly Alive, What My Suicide attempt taught me about God and living life to the fullest. Did I get that right? 100%. Yeah. And Beth edited that book. So we did it together. That's fantastic. And not only that, but there's a little success story behind this, right? You were on Amazon's number one seller. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I spent about seven years trying to get 
this book published in different forms. We wrote three different versions. Um, Beth and I went back and forth for years until finally I, we just, I just decided we have to get this story out there. Um, you know, a lot of Christian publishers were saying, no one wants to read about suicide. You're not famous enough. I just kept getting all these doors slammed in my face. And in the meantime, like, I know there's a massive crisis because I'm out here doing this work and we're doing speaking events and I am knocking on these churches doors going, we have to talk about this. I, I don't know how, I don't know what to do, but like, we can't just sit here and not talk about this anymore. So finally, we decided to self-publish, which that's an insane journey on Amazon. And the book has just done insanely well. It's been the number one book on Christian faith, I think 15 or 16 days this year, like outselling Max Lucado, like what is happening with our book? But it's super exciting. And I'm just so proud that the number one book on Christian faith is about something that's so important and something that the people just aren't talking about. Yeah. You know, to that point, as I look at the data, I just found on your website, I don't know today's data, but you have a date, a point on there, 2016, almost 43,000 people took their own life. It boils down to someone completing suicide every 12.3 minutes. Do you have any other data just to help people understand how big of a deal this is? Oh yeah. It's, it's continued to climb. It, it was over 47,000 um, in 2018. Uh, we are at a 50 year high. Um, and most of the experts say there's no um, reason to believe it's going to decrease. In fact, they, they think it's going to continue to go up the way that our system is set up, the way that our healthcare system deals with mental health. They think it's going to continue to become even more of a crisis. So I hear the phrase mental health thrown around a lot. When you use the phrase mental health, what does that mean to you? What, what do you put in that box? There's a wide range of mental illnesses, many that we've heard of, but it's a lot more common than you think. You know, I like to, you're sitting at the grocery store, you're in line at Target, you're looking around, you count one out of six of those people, someone there is struggling with mental health. That's fantastically scary. One out of six people as you just run into them. So let's um, transition into your stories for a minute. This will be the hard part, the heavy part of our conversation, but uh, I know that people will connect with each of you in unique ways. And so, Sam, if you don't mind going first, do you mind just telling us your story as much as you feel comfortable telling? Absolutely. I just had a rough, I just had a number of struggles growing up. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, He left when I was 12. Um, My mom was a single parent just trying to get us through we both went through a lot of abuse and struggle through that. And I was kind of the one that kind of held it together. I mean, middle school, when my dad left, I was starting on the basketball team and I had straight A's and teachers had no idea what was going on underneath the surface. When I got to high school, things really got very hard for me. I couldn't concentrate or focus. My grades tanked. I quit the sports I'd been involved in. And a lot of these struggles, I I didn't know what it was called at the time. Now I know that it's called depression, Um, but I was just really struggling with the trauma that I'd been through. Um, and wasn't, wasn't receiving any help. And in fact, 80% of teens don't receive the help that they need with their mental health, which is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about it. It's just getting the word out there earlier and helping teens get connected with what they're at. So um, I went off to college to be a music teacher. Um, unfortunately, a lot of my problems followed me. And following college, you know, 22, 23, 24, are really hard years for a lot of people. We kind of just expect our, our young adults to have everything figured out and have a great job and just do all the things. And I was just a mess. I'd moved back home um, to save money and try to pay off my student loans. And so now I'm back in this house where all this trauma had happened to me and all these things are coming back up. And I'm a first year elementary teacher and I just hate my job. The kids hate me. It's just, I'm trying every single day, but every new teacher, it's just, it's insanely hard and you're making 12 cents an hour. And um, in the meantime, I'm like trying to cope with 
um, partying and I got thrown back into a high school crew that wasn't supporting a lifestyle that was healthy for me. And uh, I, I just really hit rock bottom, completely hit rock bottom. Um, actually, I picked a day to end it. Actually, picked Christmas Day. It's you know one of the things I hear the most about suicide is it's selfish. It's the most selfish thing anyone could ever do. And anytime that I talk about this, I just I try to tell people if you could experience the amount of pain that I was in for even just five minutes, I don't think you'd say that wanting a way out of that pain was selfish. I think you'd say. I, I get it. I understand. And, you know, I, I certainly understand the devastation now on this side of the work that it leaves in families and that, and I see that, but in a lot of ways, and for me, it was, I actually thought I was doing the world a favor. You know, the enemy can twist your mind so much. Um, you're not seeing truth. You're not seeing what's really happening. You're not experiencing love. You're not experiencing the world as it really is. Your mind really is sick um, and it's twisted and, and you don't understand. So, you know, even in that month preparing and kind of planning and picking this day, I really thought that I was being selfless. That I was like, okay, now these people aren't going to have to deal with this anymore. They're not going to have to deal with my irritability and my mood swings and just whatever it was. I could see the toll that my, I didn't even really know that I was sick at the time, but the, the, the illness, my illness, the toll it was taking on the people around me. And I, I thought I was helping. So I woke up on Christmas day. I didn't know for sure what I was going to do, but I wrestled with it all day. I picked up the tools that I planned to use, put them back down. I'd cry into the bathroom floor. I'd fall asleep. Um, it really is the closest thing that I could think of, of what hell must be like. And if you can imagine a pain so deep that you don't care what happens to your friends and family, that is completely where I was. Um, so spent late in the evening, you know, I kind of started counting backwards from 10, just and it's funny, like you think about a, a guy who grew up without a dad, it's like, what is the enemy going to use, right? He's going to attack your man, manliness. He's going to attack masculinity, all of those things. And just all those voices um, massively attacking me, um, telling me to just get it over with. And I was counting backwards from 10 and somewhere around three, um, I just paused and it was just this feeling. Um, it wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't anything like that. It was just this feeling of, have you really given life everything you've got? Like, have you really given your healing, your fighting back? Have you really tried to get better from this or are you just giving up? And so I decided to stay. Um, I ran out of the bathroom. I grabbed everything that I had had. I drove for a long time, just kind of thinking, you know, how would I take my life back? How would I get back from this? And I kind of sat in my car late in the night. I watched kind of the minutes tick by on my clock, 1157, 1158, 1159 midnight. I had made it. I decided to stay and I went back home. I went to sleep. I woke up the next day, somewhat emotional stability restored and, and kind of started fighting back a little bit. And I mean, that was almost 10 years ago. I still struggle. I still battle. I still work really hard at my mental health. It hasn't been a quick and an instant healing, but it has been, uh, it's been good. It's been good. Lots of things I would have missed and lots of things I'm thankful uh, that I made that choice. I have just so many questions to uh, unpack with you, Sam. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll give your brain a break for a second and we'll just let Beth kind of tell her story on why she's here today as well. And then I'll, we'll come back, just bounce back and forth the conversation. So Beth, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. The reason why I'm here talking with you today is because um, I have three children. Um, my oldest daughter, Jenna, um, uh, I don't even know where to start. We had a really close relationship. She was just wonderful. Um, I teach teenagers, and oh, when she became a teen, she was my favorite. Um, I'd been waiting for her to become a teen because I love that age. And she had a lot of friends. 
She's really beautiful. She's five foot nine. Just fun, funny to be around. Really the life of our family at that time. Um, just hilarious. She loved life, loved um, writing, reading, being with people, playing clarinet in the band. Um, she was really active, involved, um, a great student, and just, just I loved being around her. And she, she talked to me all the time, which always surprised me because when I was growing up, I had two really good parents, but I didn't really open up to them. I was really private, had a lot of time in my room, and uh, just, uh, I, I did not share things, and Jenna always did. So it was just really, I can't tell you, it was just like amazing uh, to get to be her mom and uh, know her as both my daughter and, I don't know if this is correct or not, but really as my friend. And I knew that she struggled with some things, but they didn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Honestly, I, I mean, teenagers struggle. It, it is hard to be a teenager. And I think it's probably even that much harder in today's culture than it was when I was a teenager, you know, a long time ago. Um, and I, I'm with teenagers all the time and they talk to me. So I know, I know that it's, I know that it's hard. So I knew that there were some things Jenna was struggling with, um, some bullying going on at school, some exclusion, um, some clickiness. And she just, she wanted to be liked by everybody. She wanted to be accepted by everybody. And she honestly, in the homeschool community, that's what she was used to. And then, um, she went to a school for the gifted, a public school um, in seventh and eighth grade and found out that the culture was a little bit different and she didn't quite know how to navigate it. In a lot of ways it was going so well, but in some ways it was a little bit rough. But she kept talking to me and uh, we, we worked through some things that I didn't really think were that big of a deal. Never talked to a counselor because I didn't think she needed to. And um, then one day, halfway through her freshman year, it was on, um, the night of January 2nd. So we had just finished winter break. It was her first day back at school. I picked her up from school, um, drove her home. She was telling me about her day, laughing. We were talking. She had a game day planned with friends in a few days. Auditions coming up for all county and all region band. Like I just thought everything was good and I thought our family was good. Things were solid. Yeah, it, it was really good. And um, she got home from school. She asked me, um, she was in a room for just a little while. And then she came out and asked me if she could go to her thinking spot, which is only about 200, 200 yards away down at the end of our cul-de-sac. It's a place where she just likes to go. She'd done it for several years just to hang out, have time to think and process and uh, just be free, you know, uh, out in the woods. And she, she said then uh, she just needed a little bit of time and space and then she'd be back home and uh, to finish her AP world history before going to youth group that night. It was a Wednesday night. And so I didn't think anything of it. I said, of course, you know, like you can do that. She, she was standing right beside her Christmas tree. I was actually editing a book for one of my students and uh, said, absolutely, you know. Then it got dark and it was about, I don't know, 5.15. And I realized suddenly that it was dark outside and she wasn't home and, um, then I started to get concerned because my mind instantly went to, um, I, I'm not a fearful person. I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm not usually anxious or worried about things like this, but my mind went to maybe she's been abducted. And that was horrible. That was um, traumatic for parents. That's a parent's night nightmare. So my husband got home from work. We, he went looking for her. I, I put my two younger kids who at that Time had just turned ages uh, 10 and 7. I put them in the van. We went out looking for her and um, no one, we, none of us could find her. So then we called the police. The police came up um, with their search dogs and they searched for her. Um, I felt like my husband and I were interrogated. You know, they thought that 
maybe there'd been a big family thing that had happened and she had run away and was at a friend's house and they went through our, searched our home, they searched, they confiscated her computer and all kinds of stuff. And so that was really traumatic. But then word got out, people started showing up at our house, friends, uh, neighbors, and uh, there was probably a search party of about 30 people. And I don't know, it was maybe an hour, hour and a half. It took a long time. Hour, hour and a half later, two of our neighbors and a friend actually found her and she had ended her own life. Yeah, she had ended her life. Um, and I was back at the house. Um, some friends had very wisely picked up my younger kids but while the search was going on and taken them, taken them away for the night. I was in my home with my husband um, when one of the friends, uh, a friend of ours came in and said, um, you need to sit down. And that's kind of when I knew not what had happened, but that the news was not good. And this wasn't gonna have the ending that I had been hoping and praying for. Um, and then he knelt, we were sitting on the couch and he knelt before us and he just said, um, your daughter is dead. It appears she's taken her own life. And I can't even tell you, um, I can still go back to that. It's eight, year, eight years ago and I can go back to it like it was yesterday. Um, just how hard that was. Like I had no, no inkling, no clue. Like I could not even process it because there were no warning signs. You know, you get your typical warning signs of, of someone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts and they weren't there. She was not isolating herself. You know, she wasn't giving things away. She had not made an attempt. And I, I just, I had so little understanding. And it was um, I, obviously the most painful, painful moment of my life. And so I think the last eight years have just been, okay, so how do you, how do you walk through that? How do you walk through that and still be a teacher and still be a mom and still be a friend? And how do you just keep on living yourself? Like, um, I have definitely struggled with depression and some really hard questions uh, for God and about, about life ever since then. Um, Sam's story has actually spoken directly to me and helped me just one step at a time just to keep going. So yeah, that's why I'm here. So one of the things you're taught as a pastor, Jesus makes this point at one point that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as a pastor, I've been trained to listen to a person's words and you can hear things are going on in their heart if you get good enough at listening. Beth, I'm hearing something at you in you, I, and I don't know if, if I'm picking up on something that's real or not real. So help me here. Do you ever feel judged by other people related to your daughter's story? You've made three or four comments along the lines of she came from a really good home. We had a fantastic relationship. We used to talk all the time. Do you feel the community at large points a finger at Jenna's mom and dad and says, if only you had known, if only you had paid attention, or is that a voice that rings around in your head? That's a great question. I would say that I judge myself because I struggle with perfectionism and I just so much uh, more than anything in the world. I just wanted to be a great mom, you know? I wanted to be a great teacher, but now these are my own kids, you know? And so I think that transferred. Like, I just want to be the best mom ever. And I will probably just back up a little bit. Um, when I was in ninth grade, when I was in ninth grade, I wrestled with um, a lot of suicidal thoughts. I never had a plan. I never attempted, I didn't have a plan. Um, but things just got really dark that year. And I wasn't really sure that I wanted to keep living. And I, I still don't understand it because I had a solid family. I had friends. I was doing well in school. You know, I played sports. Like everything in my life was solid. It was good. 
but I still wrestled. And that's actually why I decided to become a high school teacher, because I wanted to reach out freshman students who were probably experiencing the same thing. But I never saw it. I never saw it with Jenna. Like we didn't even have the conversa- conversation that Sam Sam mentioned, you know, start the conversation. Let's talk about this. I never had that conversation with her because I just didn't see it. <laughs> I didn't see any concern about that in her life. And so I think to answer your question, I think I judged myself. I just wanted so much to do everything right. And I make a lot of mistakes. As parents, we all make a ton of mistakes. And I know that, and there's a lot of grace and there's a lot of forgiveness for myself. But um, I think there's that judgment of like, how did I miss this? Like, how did I not see? And, and now I know more than I did then. Like I know from, from going through counseling, I, I know that a lot of times teenagers who are really bright, they hide it, you know, or young adults or any, any of us, we hide it because we don't want to hurt the people we love, right? We don't want to burden them. And, and Jenna even said in her, she left it like three page single space type suicide letter. And she even said like, I hid this from you. Like, and I, I got to go back and read through all her journals and all the writing she had done. And it's like, I knew everything, but I didn't know about this struggle with uh, depression and suicidal thoughts. And, but the still like the teacher in me and you know, the mom in me says, how did I miss that? Why didn't I see it? And, and she should be here. So I feel like, I feel like I judge myself. I, there's been a lot less judgment since I met Sam and since I heard his story. And there's been so much more understanding that's come through his story, but it's, it's still there. I think that people do judge sometimes. I, I know there was something on, there were a few things on Facebook that I've, people sh- told me about after the fact, um, when we lost Jenna, like some people wrote, what kind of family did they come from? What was going on? What was going on in that house? You know, what was going on? I know that that is out there. My personal experience, which I think was different than the norm, is that we we were really supported by friends, uh, by friends from our homeschool co-op, from the church, from all kinds of places reached out to us and just uh, supported us and said, you know, if this could happen in your family, it could happen in ours. You know, like Jenna is the last person we expected to choose to end her life. And, and I had a lot of teenagers just come out to me afterwards and just say, um, I have been struggling with the same thoughts. And I, and Sam kind of alluded to this, um, but they said, I, I, it just hurts sometimes to live. And I never thought of the impact it would leave on the people who care most about me and on the family. But now that I see your family walking through it, I'm having different thoughts about living and choosing to end my life. I, I don't know that I want to do this to the people who really do care and love me. So yeah, uh, I feel like we were mostly really supported. I have had some friends walk away, some friends who've been very honest with me and very lovingly said, we just can't be around you anymore. Cause when you're around where, I mean, I, I just think I'm kind of, I'm serious, but I'm kind of fun to be around still, maybe. Sam, maybe. (laughs) um, (laughs) Sam's affirming with a head nod. You just can't see it here for those listening. (laughs) I love to laugh. I I love to embrace life and live in the moment. I I try not to live in the past. I think I'm in the here and now, but I've had some people very honestly said, you know, it's just really hard for me to be around you. And they've ended friendship with me. Um, They said, because whenever we're around you, we feel your grief, you know, and there's just a constant reminder of, not with words, but just with my physical presence of Jenna not being here, you know, the silence of her absence. But I don't know that that's being judged. I think overall people have been so much better than I ever would have known, unless they're 
there's things they're not telling me. Well, it's not coming from this end of things. Uh, in general, I, I've, I've read some stuff Sam has put out there. I've listened to some stuff Sam has said, uh, even though it's our first conversation together. And I would agree with a lot of what Sam has to say about the Christian community being certainly too judgmental. And so I'm sorry that you've had that experience at all. I want to Come back in a minute, Beth, and talk about that letter. You wrote a fantastic article summarizing the seven lies. I've got them here, but I want to give you a break kind of in your brain to kind of process and think about what that conversation would look like, because I think those lies in one way or another are lies everybody believes. So I'm going to come back to Sam for a minute. You know, Sam, you you wrote on your website, you have these things that you were dealing with before you led your bathroom moment. You say this, ever felt guilty for the pain you cause others? Ever started with a counselor only to have them move across the country twice? Ever screamed out in your mind for everyone to leave you the F alone? Ever told your doctor you're struggling and then lied on the depression screener out of fear? Ever pulled the covers over your head wanting to stay asleep where the world can't hurt you? Ever turned to drugs, alcohol, food, pornography, anything to numb the anguish for a few hours? Ever gone to support group meeting and lost the courage to ever go back? Ever lied to everyone you love that you're sick because you just can't be around people? Ever written goodbye letters? I think obviously, Sam, you've, you did all those things, right? That's what you say on your website. Would you say these are classic signs for people? You're headed towards something not good. This is some of those triggers to pay attention to? Absolutely. I mean, depression is so hard because it hits everyone differently. And, you know, it's not like a, and you have a sneeze and a cough and here you are. It's triggered by different things. You know, some people it's, it's just incidental. It's, you know, they've lost someone they love or they've been through something hard and they work through it themselves and they never need help. And some people it's a lifelong battle. I mean, depression is the number one cause of disability in our country. It's not people being lazy. It's people just massively struggling and not knowing how to function in in the world. And when we talk about warning signs, um, some of the biggest ones are eating too much or not eating enough, sleeping too much, not sleeping enough, talking about death a lot, withdrawing from the world, not feeling um, pleasure or fun from things that you used to enjoy. But like I said, there's there's lots of different uh, signs. And the hardest part is it's not easy to see in other people either. You know, it's hard to see in yourself, but it's, it's, it's there's easy ways to explain all of those things away um, in the people that we love. Okay, so Sam, you've launched this book and you've launched a ministry to help serve a lot of people. Every time you tell your story, do you find it gets easier? Do you find it gets harder as you tell your story over and over and over again? Does it take you back? Do you re-experience the same emotions? Yeah, so research shows that you actually, your body tends to relive trauma. Your body will start to feel some of the same chemicals you felt in that moment every time you tell the story. So I had a counselor say to me, it should be getting easier. You know, you'll have this moment where you just enjoy it and you just stand on stages and it doesn't hurt at all. And I mean, I've done this over a hundred times now and it has never gotten easier. Even this morning I woke up and I was like, I don't feel like telling this story today. Um, It is a a constant battle. The book has been a bit of a relief because now I don't feel as much pressure to tell it. I kind of can just say, here's my story if you would like to be a part of it. But I also have seen just the immense impact that it has. I mean, one the reason I started my ministry is because no one stood up. I had never once heard a single person stand up and say, you might struggle with this too. You might get here. You might be in a place where you don't want to be alive, but you're going to be okay. You're going to get through it. Never once had I heard a story, had I read a book, had I seen a movie. And so I just believe in my core, the more that we share stories and the more that we just share our humanity and make it okay to 
to be open about these things, the more lives that we will save. I'm with you on that one. You mentioned in one of your videos and you kind of gave a reference. I'm going to use this as a bridge between both of you. But at some point, Sam, one of your therapist counselors said to you, Sam, maybe maybe it's time for you to accept that you're going to struggle with this the rest of your life. And I don't know when you recorded your video on YouTube after that statement was made. It was like that same day you went home or weeks or months or years later. But it sounded like in your video that one hit like a ton of bricks. Do you believe that therapist is correct in their assessment of you? Or do you think, no, that's a lie coming from the enemy to wound me and hurt me? Part of it is you yourself have to discern every voice that you're letting into your head, whether that is a pastor, a medical professional. At the end of the day, you are the one who has to decide, does that ring true for my story? Yes or no? That was very hard. And it sent me into a really dark place for a while because who wants to have someone say, oh, by the way, your life's going to be really hard for the next 40 years. So you might as well just get on with it. It's like, what? He meant it. He, I think he meant, well, I, for myself have to say, absolutely not. Because I, <laughs> if the next 20 years are like the last 20 years, yeah, there've been plenty of fantastic, incredible moments, but gosh, it's been really, really hard. So I choose to believe in hope. Um, I choose to believe that life can always get better for every single person. And I choose to just live in the moment of today. I'm just going to be the best version of myself today, the most whole and healed version I can be. And we'll deal with the rest tomorrow. I'm proud of you. Like you said, everybody has to discern God's voice. But boy, Jesus' voice sure sounds hopeful and not hopeless. So however that plays out in each of our lives. I wish Matt Nickerson at almost now 45 years old didn't act in some of the same ways and struggle with some of the same things that I did when I met Beth at 14 years old, but unfortunately I do. But those voices and those struggles are not as strong today as they were then. So there's progress, but praying for you either way. Beth, you also shared online and in some of your blogs that you had a conversation with a therapist where you you took in the letter from your daughter. You took in um, what you knew, conversations, blogs she had. And a therapist said something really profound to you that was helpful about, man, if they were talking to her today, they wouldn't have seen this coming either. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I just need to say that the counselor who has really, just really helped me, he lost his father to suicide when he was nine years old. And then he worked as a paramedic. So he saw suicide from the eyes of a paramedic. And then he went on to um, get his PhD in suicide, you know, how, how to help counsel people. So he, he understands it firsthand. But yeah, the words he said to me is he said, um, given the opportunity, Jenna would not make the same choice again, but she also wouldn't want her death to be in vain. She would want us to learn from it so we can live as overcomers, as victors. Her letter and writings are a rare gift. And so again, that just gave me perspective that this is really hard. I mean, I lost a daughter and I lost a friend and I lost all the years that we should have had together. And I just, I loved her tremendously, you know, and and now she's not here. There's just so much silence. I can't change what happened, you know? And so let's pick up the pieces and let's move forward the best we can and share the story um, so that other families and other people are not, maybe won't go through the same thing we have. Jenna's letter, and we could take as long as we need on this. And Sam, I want you to feel free to speak into where these seven lies intersect what either you saw in your life or you see in the lives of other teens and other people as you're working with them. But there were seven lies that you located in this letter she found. The seven lies are this. So I'll just read them and then ask you a question. Lie number one, I'm a loser. Lie number two, 
I'm too unattractive and unpopular to be loved. Lie number three, I'm a burden. Lie number four, I fulfilled my reason for being here. Lie number five, no one will miss me when I'm gone. Lie number six, depression is a hopeless fight. And lie number seven, I can't hold on. When you got that letter, and I know you've said you've read it more times than I could even fathom, I'm sure. So Beth, as you rehear those same seven lies and you process through them, you've wrote about them, blogged about them many times. I'm so glad you did. What wisdom do you have for other people who are believing some of those same lies today? What thoughts do you have about what your daughter went through? Yeah, um, when you when you read those, I have the exact same response I had eight years ago when when I sat on the couch and that letter was read to me a few days after her death, and it's just like, how 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 could you believe that? Like that is so far from the truth of who you are and your identity, and you were so loved, and you you were amazing, you know. And there, I love a phrase that Sam uses. He always says, when it comes to depression, there's help and there's hope. You know, like you didn't have to fight this alone. If you would have just told us, we would have, we would have taken you to a counselor. We would have stood beside you. We would have done anything we could to help you get through this, whether it's a season or this struggle you have the rest of your life, you know, we will be there for you. And you're not a burden. Like we love you. You don't know, you don't know how much joy you bring to our lives. You know, like it would be a joy, you know, she, at the time she wanted to be a doctor. It's like, we will find a way to pay for me- you to go to med- medical school. Like. That is not a burden. Like we love you and we want to see you fulfill your dreams and do whatever you're called to do in life, you know, and nobody will miss me when I'm gone. Like, hello, it's been eight years and I still think about her every single day. My husband and I just got back from, we went away to um, a mountain cabin in Tennessee for a few days just to have some time together before I start teaching again. And as we were pulling out of the, it's very remote, um, no internet. And as we were pulling out of the site, um, and Jenna had been there with us and we actually celebrated her 10 year old birthday there. And as we were pulling out of the site, my husband just broke down sobbing, you know, and that's eight years. He just said, the memories are are just too hard. You know, like, so you have these good memories, but my blog is titled Bittersweet because it is, it, everything is so bittersweet. You know, um, my middle daughter just graduated from high school. That was so sweet. But it's just a reminder that we never got to see Jenna graduate. You know, just everything. You know, these lies, like, there's still that big part of me that's like, how could you believe this? It's so far from the truth. But I will also say that there's a part of me now that says, I understand, you know? Because um, since Jenna's death, you know, they say gr- grief is not linear. Grief is, you know, it's you go in cycles. And um, there are times when I'm doing pretty well. And there's times when I get triggered and it hits really hard again and it comes back. And I will just, and I've hit some really low points with depression. And I will say that I've probably I know, I have. I've believed every one of these lies too at different times. If we're honest with ourselves, most people have at different times in their life. I read, I don't remember what it was, by John Eldridge. Uh, John Eldridge uh, wrote the book Wild at Heart, but he was he was telling a story in one of his books or something, podcast I was listening to. He and his wife were like driving down the road and they're as happy as happy can be. 
Um, and he just keeps thinking about like, man, I just love this woman, crazy lover. She's amazing. And then like five minutes later, um, something came up, a conversation and she makes a comment and that comment went to all the wounds, all the fights that they've ever had as a couple. And he said, literally next thing I know, one minute I'm like this most amazing woman ever. And the next thing you know, I'm thinking I'm tired of this. I'm done with it. I'm leaving this woman. I want out. And he said, you know, it took me a long time to figure out maybe just maybe I have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, which is what the Bible says, John chapter 10, verse 10. And maybe, just maybe, that enemy is actually looking for the right moment to get in there and whisper those lies to me and get me to believe those things are true when I don't actually, when I look at the big picture, I I know those aren't true. But in that moment, when I feel most tempted, most weak, most vulnerable, that lie seems so real. Sam, can you relate with that, that voice, those voices? 100%. I think one of the biggest breakthroughs for me in my recovery journey was this phrase that your brain is lying to you. It's recognizing that not every thought that you have in your head is true. And the more you're struggling, um, the more real those lies feel. And and yeah, it's, it's a rough world out there. It's a rough world that is obsessed with appearances and popularity and wealth. I mean, that is all that matters to a lot of people that are around us. So it is no shock that we as people feel the same, that we get lost in. Those are the most important things when, you know, we know somewhere in here that that's not true, but it gets lost in our, in our head um, and we just get still beaten down by the world around us, um, especially if we we don't know how to navigate those thoughts. You know, we don't know how to fight back. We don't know that we can use our voice and our, our, our brain to fight back against those things. We don't just have to accept um, what our brain tells us. You referenced in something I read or listened to from you, Sam, a still small voice. You even said it earlier when you were in the bathroom floor and you heard that voice when you got to three, I think you said, and the, the voice said something to you. Talk to me a little bit about that voice. To be honest, it it feels a lot more, it's more of a feeling to me than a voice. And it's a lot more of a nudge. It's a nudge into what feels good and right and true. You know, following my attempt, I immediately had this feeling that I wanted to help other people. I didn't act on that for a very long time, but immediately I wrote a blog post and I started my blog that same month. And I immediately wrote, I want to use the pain I've experienced to help other people following the attempt, I really threw myself into church. I was there four and five days a week. I volunteered every area of youth ministry, worship team. I just had this feeling to myself. I was like, clearly all the decisions I've made have led me to a place where I don't want to be alive. So God, if you are real and if you are true, I need you to show me a better way. And I just started by saying, you know, if this feels like something God want me to do, I'm just going to say, yes, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to fight back little things, big things, whatever. And it's kind of trial and error. It's like, I, I, then I got too busy and I got overworked and I got stressed again, but it, it gave me a backbone to just say, does this feel good and right and true to who I am in my core? If I sit down and I'm quiet and I listen to the universe, does this feel good and right and true? And I just use that. That is, that is my barometer. It's not, you know, loudspeakers telling me what to do. It's just quiet core feeling um, and listening. Sometimes I'm a terrible pastor because I remember hearing Bible passages and I'm like, I think it was in this book and it might've been around this chapter and I could be wrong. But I remember it says somewhere in Isaiah, you will hear a voice coming from behind you saying, do not turn to the right or do not turn to the left. And um, again, when I say it's a voice, um, I think most of us who have learned to tune into God, uh, most of us wouldn't want to say it's a voice because then we sound crazy and we feel like we're in some weird movie and everybody thinks we're whatever. And it's not that. But like you said, there is that conviction 
Um, there is that, um, that I, the Bible calls it a still small voice. It's that thing inside you that says there's something better, something better than this. And we can put that out like you put out a candle or we can fan that flame and say, you know what? I think I want to listen to that voice instead. Thank you for tuning in to today's interview with Beth and Sam. We truly hope that you are blessed by part one. In part two of our interview, we're going to get into just some wisdom for those of you who maybe have a child, a loved one, or you yourself have struggled with suicidal thoughts and just looking for more resources. You could find part two in wherever you found this in your podcast store. And also the show notes will have links to the website and you could find all of that there. We look forward to seeing you over in the second part of this interview here on More To Be Said.